Hello and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. My name is Jude McMcGowan. I'm a dyslexic, actor and a writer, and now I'm a podcaster. This podcast is to support the incredible work of the Dyslexia Foundation, whose mission is to unlock the full potential of children and adults with dyslexia so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read or free. Everything is free at the point of use. My guest today is MP for Hove and Port Slade and the Shadow Justice Minister, Peter Kyle. He describes himself as having acute dyslexia, but after being encouraged by his former friend, Alan Rickman, whom he became acquainted with having received financial help from him to form an aid organization in his early 20s, he got his PhD at 25 in community economic development from Sussex University which has since led him to be a chair of further education and lifelong learning. He has led campaigns in Parliament to protect victims of domestic abuse, the homeless crisis, the reformation of family courts and lowering of the voting age to 16. In his constituency, he has supported affordable housing, campaigned against school cuts and worked with the council to create a thousand local apprenticeships. So I wanted to speak to Peter Cole because I I really wanted to get a sense of what the day-to-day is for an MP, but also what it's like being acutely dyslexic and a member of parliament. I really enjoyed speaking to Peter. He's very erudite, he's very impassioned. As you'll hear in the interview, um, he goes from anecdote to anecdote, um, story to story, really adeptly. Talks about his life as an aid worker in the Balkans and in Romania. And and then the, the people who have affected his life, two beautiful examples you'll hear of exceptional people having a profound influence on his life. I took away from the interview with Peter the value of persistency and Peter feels quite strongly that people take no for an answer too willingly, that they accept no's when they should be persistent, when they should really be uh, tenacious and, and, and try again. And he's an example of that. He's an example of somebody who just would not take no for an answer with everything he achieved in terms of gaining his PhD, being an aid worker, being an MP. And that really tallied with with me, not taking over an answer. Try, try, try again. If you fail, fail again, fail better. Well, hello and welcome, Peter. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. You know what I would love to to start with is someone who who means a lot to me, um, certainly meant a lot to me as an actor growing up was Alan Rickman. And I would love to ask you about your relationship with him because I read your tribute to him uh, after his death and um, and I was I was choked up. I mean, it, it, it sounds like he was someone who had a profound effect on your life. Alan is was uh, just the most remarkable person. Uh, I, I could spend an entire hour talking to you about him and the impact he had on on my life he was a very let's do it <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> I'm, I'm up for it i mean i've <laughs> i'm i've been a bit disappointed at times that more people haven't actually asked me about him because you know his legacy i think is huge his artistic and cultural legacy oh yeah but the thing about alan was he was such a disciplined person you know he, he disciplined himself hugely to care for others to think uh, about other people to to look at the world through other people's eyes so he was a very sort of uh, personality-wise, very rich person in that, you know, he had there were so many facets to his personality. He culturally, clearly, he was encyclopedic. Yeah, uh, he had he did have this huge charisma, the charisma that you see on screen. He he had that, 
which could be intimidating. Yeah. But he was very, very good at putting people at ease. But the thing about him was that he 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 just had this thing in him where he desperately wanted everyone that he came into contact with to achieve everything they're capable of. And he loved finding out what people were capable of, uh, helping people understand their capacity and their, their talents. And then he just, he, he just pushed people. You know, he just he encouraged people. He cajoled people. He trained people and mentored people. I met him when I was just 21, 22. And that was when I was working on a, a fundraiser for a charity. Uh, and then we stayed in touch loosely after that. And then we did a trip together where I went to show him the work we were doing in Eastern Europe with young people that we'd done with all the money he'd raised. Yes. And there were just so many weird things that happened on that trip, so many intense things that happened on that trip that we just completely bonded yeah. uh, and became very, very close friends. And we traveled together. We, we, we went on holiday together. Uh, but he was uh, probably him and Anita Roddick were the two people uh, outside of family that I simply wouldn't be talking to you today without. Uh, and just to give you one example, yes, just one brief example of how, of, of his brilliance and how what, what it was like to be championed and mentored by him at, at university. I'd, we're we're going to talk about how I got to university, but oh yeah, we will. Uh, they, I'd made they'd made me an offer to do a, a doctorate, so it, it is quite quite amusing because the one of the professors called me to his office and said, Peter, we'd like you to consider doing a, a doctorate. You know, is that something you'd like to consider? And I said, well, yeah, I'd love to consider it. You know, can I think about it? And can I just, you know, see what the impact will be and get back to you in a couple of days and perhaps have a follow-up conversation? They were like, yeah, that's very sensible. Yeah, that's, that, that we'll do that. What I was thinking in my head is, I've got no idea what a doctorate is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no one in my family had ever been to university before. Wow. Uh, and I was the first person to really get an O-level, A-level you know, then a degree <laughs> and go to university. Yeah. This is not disparaging my family at all because, you know, no. because of how amazing my family is, it went from where it did to, to where it is. So I just, uh, I, I said to this, I was walking down a street with Alan and I said, well, you never guess what? The university said to me yesterday, they called me in and said this. And he said, well, are you going to do it? And I went, no way. No way. I said, somebody like me doesn't do those sorts of things. Mm. I went to the library. I read up about doctorates. I, 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 you know, I did all of that. That's not me. He stopped me in the street. He stopped walking. He it was rooted to the spot. And he just turned to me and absolutely tore shreds off me. <laughs> you know, imagine having Alan Rickman in the middle of a street, <laughs> you know, dressing you down with that voice and the charisma turned up to 10. Yeah that voice. And he just, he was pointing his finger at me and he was just, you know, how could you say that? How could you say that you're not capable of, of doing a doctorate? And he listed a whole bunch of people who had doctorates. And he said, and you're saying that you're not good enough to be like them. <laughs> you are not like them. He said, of course you are. Wow. And he frog marched me back home, yeah. fuming, shouted at the top of his voice when he walked into the home, Rima, Rima. And of course, Rima, his, his partner and wife, uh, was the lecturer at the university. Yeah. Uh, Rima came out thinking there was some emergency and he just pointed at me and said, he thinks he can't do a doctorate. Tell him. And then he, he walked off and left me <laughs> uh, with Rima, who sort of quietly and calmly talked me through everything. Uh, well, the very next morning I went in and was just too scared not to accept doing a doctorate. Yeah, you would be. You would be, wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, there are so many things I want to unpack uh, from that but I mean um, so I've, I've started mentoring somebody at my drama school young a young actor and you know there's many things you can start with you know in terms of like you know you need a side hustle if you're going to get into this game as an actor but also you, you sort of want to impress upon people that 
being having the privilege of having someone like that in your life who is going to take the time to dress you down in the street and have such a profound effect on your life if if you can encourage people to to seek out those people who who will push you to you know do scary stuff like do phd's when no one in your family has done it i mean what what a a gift of a human to have in your life he had the equal opposite and that's what i meant about him being quite a, a sort of rich character because you know mid, i i struggled hugely doing the doctorate i mean i really i worked myself to to being you know quite ill yeah and he called up once uh, and just said how are you uh, we were chatting and, you know, I said, I'm fine. I was in my office at uh, university. It was a Sunday and, uh, or sorry, it's Saturday. And he, uh, he called up and said, uh, about half an hour later, we hung up half an hour later, he called up and said, um, we're going to the opening of a show tonight in London. We're going to go and see something fun. He said, we're going to go to the Albert hall and we're going to see the opening of a Cirque du Soleil show. He, and I, I said, but, but, but he said, no, 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 there is no, but. He said, I, I can hear it in your voice. You need to have a break and you need to think differently and you need to escape whatever it is you, you know, you're in at the moment. Yeah. And he said, so I don't care if you work. He says, so pack your bags, come up here now. We'll go to the show, stay over. And in the morning, work from here. Uh, and if you get back from the show and you've got to do an hour's work before you go to sleep, he said, do it. He said, but bring your laptop with you. And of course, you don't say no when Alan's no. like that. So I, I did it. I went up there and we went, we went to see the show and uh, I did do some work. And the next day I just, you know, banged out 2000 words and it was perfect sitting in his, in his flat. Uh, so it was, you know, he, he had that kind of, there was an intuitiveness, a softness and a real uh, caring there that was quite remarkable. You know, that's why he, he was so sort of multifaceted. So I've always had this sort of, I've always been very, very aware of the people who, who have invested in me. Uh, who had no need to at all. Yeah. Uh, and so the fact that you're doing that for other people, I think is fantastic. You know, I certainly try my very, very best to do it. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's very important. Well, look, that leads me neatly um, onto my next question, which, I mean, forgive me if it's a hot take, but that level of, um, of, of Alan pushing himself to be empathetic, you know, or disciplining himself in that way and, and, and thinking about how he could encourage other people, is that something that you've taken into your politics? Is that something that rubbed off on you? There's absolutely no question about it. Uh, you know, I've had some personal experiences, some that I talk about, some that I don't, which which does shape you as a person as you go forward. Yeah. There is no doubt that when you look at uh, Alan, uh, Anita Roddick, and Gordon Roddick, her husband, and the, the co-founders of The Body Shop, uh, they also had a profound impact on me. Anita was, uh, funnily enough, the first person that ever said to me, I should go to university in the first place. I was 25 at the time. Yeah. And... Uh, she was all instinct, you know, when lots of people talk to me about Anita Roddick and she was, it's very hard to say what parts of her personality you can really adopt and learn from because she was so instinctive. Yeah. She was so in touch with this kind of uh, visceral uh, set of emotions that she had and they expressed themselves in ideas and uh you know ways of doing things and, and a drive and grit and determination that was extraordinary and really eccentric and and i sort of thought well i can't do some of the stuff she does because i'm just not that i'm not that bonkers yeah <laughs> but, but alan on the other hand and gordon roddick anita's husband both the product of incredible self-discipline yeah and alan you know i saw the way he was with people with people who stopped him in the street 
the, the people who turned to him from help and advice, the, the, the people he mentored as artists and actors, going onto the board of RADA because he felt this incredible obligation, yeah. uh, desire to, to pay back and give back. Uh, all these sorts of things was just extraordinary. And that doesn't come from instinct. That comes from discipline. Yes. And uh, those are things I have absolutely uh, learned from Alan and some of the watchwords he's given me. So when I got selected as a candidate to become uh, an MP, uh, he said to me uh, that he wished he could tattoo on the backs of the eyelids of every politician it's not about you. Yes. And there are times in politics where it does become about you because you're the one delivering the message. Uh, but just to, I, I sometimes when when it does rebound onto me or reflects on me and people, you know, I'm talking about a, a, an issue and people contact me about me or the way that I communicated it or something. I can always just hear Alan saying, it's not about you. It's not about you. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that is about discipline and that is about sort of training and practice and being able to deflect things in your own mind away from you so that you're always looking at the world through other people's eyes. And in politics, if you can do that, then that generates a kind of empathy that is uh, put into practice rather than just being a personal thing uh, and start to be an expression of who you are as a politician and an advocate. Well, I mean, there's again, there's so much for me to unpack in that. But I can briefly say that if more of our leaders here and maybe across the pond adopted, um, you know, training their empathetic capacities, we, we might be in a different position. And, and who knows what Alan Rickman would have made of, of what's going on right now. Obviously, we started with Alan, but, you know, this this is this is a little bit about you. Um, <laughs> it's not about you, but it is about you. Yeah, okay. um, but, you know, through your story, we'll, we'll go from the specific into the general for everybody. What I would love to get inside of is the um, challenges that you face as in your own words, an acutely dyslexic person being an MP, you know, what, what is that like for you? It's very hard to say how it's different for me to others because I've never known any different. Fair play. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's hard to know precisely because it's something I've lived with for so long. And also I wasn't diagnosed as dyslexic until I went to university, in my mid to late twenties. So by then, I had overcome so much that it's just become so much part of my personality that it's hard to say how it's different. But in terms of where I struggle uh, and where I, what I, where my frustration lies, it is quite simple. And the standout thing for me is just the amount of information you need to consume as an MP to be the kind of MP that I want to be, which is one that's informed, yeah. which it can respond to people and situations and debates and discussions in as grounded a way as possible, grounded in the reading, the learning, the other people's experiences. And, uh, you know, and, and in public life, there is just such a huge breadth of things. Uh, and the thing that I that frustrates me still, and I can't, I can't not be frustrated by it is, I can't consume huge amounts of information in a written way. And, uh, and that is very difficult for me, because I've never been able to keep up with the thirst I have for reading and knowledge with the, my ability to consume it yeah and that's something that i've had for a long time and it's something that i i do struggle with because it just provokes frustration in me uh, what i'd love to do is start every day and have an hour just reading newspapers well you know i, I can and i do do that but what i can't do is just get through two or three newspapers yeah. <laughs> i can't and then a few blogs and then you know i just can't do it i, I just cannot you know something if i try and go fast i know i'm not taking it in and considering it, yes. and analyzing it, I'm not able to consume it. 
So that, that, there's no doubt that that is the thing. So in practical terms, that's just about me trying to con- consume information. Yeah. But in practical terms, as an MP, you are put in a position where you have to consume vast amounts of information just to, in order to, to do the job well. Yeah. So just to take one example, when I first got elected, I went on to the, a select committee. A select committee is a group of MPs that's representative of the constituents of the House, so politically diverse. Yeah. The membership is elected by other MPs. And each department of government, so education, foreign office, communities and local government, sport, health, all these things have their own committee of MPs over in Parliament that scrutinises them, challenges them, comes up with ideas. Uh, When something goes wrong, you do inquiries into them. But you have a constitutional power to scrutinise that department of government and the remit out in society. So I got elected onto the business select committee. Each week, you'll have one, two, sometimes three hearings. But in preparation for each of those hearings, it is sometimes two or 300 pages of briefing. And to give you just one quick example, there was an inquiry into Sports Direct and what was happening in the warehouse and in the shops and within the organization. And there was some abusive behavior, very bad practice. It was really appalling. Yes. And we finally got Mike Ashley to come give evidence. Now, if you are an MP and you have 10 minutes to question the chief executive of a global company, then who is going to know the most about that company? You know, the only way you are going to be able to hold him to account is if you have really done the homework and you have uh, understood the issues, you have spoken and internalized the evidence, that you have read everything about how the company works, how many people it employs, how they make their money. You know, what the the critics of the company have said, but why they've said it and where the criticism lies so that you can really engage in a to and fro. Because your nightmare is that you ask a question and this person in front of you, when you've got all the journalists sitting to one side, public gallery full, and it's on TV. Yes. And you suddenly get someone say, well, Peter, that's obvious. You know, didn't you read the news last week? That was dealt with. <laughs> suddenly, you know, the world just yeah. drops out in front yeah. of you. So uh, for me, that, you know, I, I, pre- I prepared. I was up till three o'clock in the morning the night before. Uh, after three hours sleep, I was up working again. I was working right the way through to it. I went in there and uh, and the questioning went very, very well and and got Mike Ashley to admit that he wasn't, he didn't have the skills needed to bring the change in his organization that that was needed uh, and all this sort of stuff. And I'd only been an MP for a few months then. Well, that's one hour out of one day of being an MP in parliament. Then you have debates, oral questions, you have all these other things, media interviews, and all of that, all of which, you know, if you're not on, you, you know, you're not playing your A game and you're not fully equipped for, prepared for, then, you know, you, you have the potential to either let down people who are counting on you, which for me is the, but the most hideous thing in the world, or you make a fool of yourself, yeah. uh, in which case it's all over YouTube and social media. So there's not a lot of margin for error and reading and consuming all of that is not easy. Yeah, no, uh, totally. Words have become my friend more with repetition, but certainly consuming that that level of information is uh, will be tough. So for you, the, the, the instance you mentioned of, of having burnout when you were studying for your doctorate, and um, and Anne could quite helpfully, you know, um, see that you were struggling and, and 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 take you out yourself for a bit. Do you do you notice when when things are getting overwhelming for yourself, and how how do you then? keep yourself topped up as it were motivated you know on your a game as you say 
Well, I always had to accept, and this is the thing that, that I've accepted from a very early age. I've always accepted that I've had to, I will have to work harder than other people to achieve the same thing. Yes. And I say this to lots of people I meet who are dyslexic and lots since it's been more widely spoken about, uh, about the struggles that I've had or uh, the dyslexia that I live with. And sometimes I have parents that will ask if I'll just have a quick chat with their, their kids or something. But I would always say to them that that shouldn't be a piece of information that daunts you or intimidates you. That should be a piece of information that liberates you. Because the moment you realize that you are going to have to work harder to achieve the same as other people, well, actually, you've just been given a, a skill, a tool to overcome the challenge and also to excel. Yeah. Because actually, with that kind of work ethic that comes from that, does come reward downstream. And the sad fact is, and we can't pretend it's not the case, that when people with neurological challenges go to an, a job interview, you know, it, you're not aware when you walk in that, the, that you have this additional challenge. And you will sit there, you'll have the interview, and they will see other people, and they'll judge it on the performance of the moment. Uh, and I don't think it's acceptable to go in to a job interview and say, well, you know, when, when they say, could you just talk us through the, the reading you've done about our company? And you say, actually, I find reading quite quite a struggle. You know, I, I don't think that's the best. I, I, that, that's not how I want to be seen. No. So once you have overcome this, you know, I've always realized that actually because of dyslexia, I am almost always the most prepared person in any room. Yes. Because I will have to do wider reading. I will have to go through things two or three times. You know, and, and I and it develops a way of investigating and preparing that other people, you know, never have to think about in their lives. Yes. So once you get that kind of ethic into your life, then it really can pay off later in life, particularly when you start to see some of the positive attributes that might come with it as well uh, and start to play those up uh, in interviews and uh, other situations. Yeah. I mean, that rings so true for myself because... One of my great friends from drama school, he complimented me in my third year about how good my sight reading was. And that was because I had had an incident in my first term where we were doing a, a rehearsed reading, sit down version of a, of a play. And it was a complete disaster for me. Loads of things were wrong. My articulation was wrong, but my approach was completely wrong. And I knew from there that I'm, I'm an underdog. I'm going to have to work harder than anybody else. I'm going to have to get in at seven o'clock, you know, to start class at 8.30 and just work on all of my text. That was such a huge victory for me that, you know, he was shocked when I told him I was dyslexic. He had no idea because because he didn't see the the iceberg. He didn't see the mountain of work I was doing underneath, you know, for, for the appearance of the tip of the iceberg at the top. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely what vibrates with me. It is funny, you know, that those, those sorts of things, because I'm sure... I'm sure people will be looking at you in those moments and think, God, it comes so easy to him, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> because that sort of preparation is unseen. Completely. I mean, that's... It's the same, it's the same in politics. Yeah. It's the same in, in, in every walk of life. And, uh, you know, I, I did a thing last week and it was, um, I was seeing a piece of legislation through because I, I, when Keir Starmer became leader of the Labour Party, he appointed me to his front bench team. So I'm a shadow minister and I saw the first piece of legislation through the committee stage of seeing a bill through to becoming a law in this country and last week and i was using you have to you go to a committee room and you have to make five or six sometimes seven or eight speeches in a day uh and the preparation for it is very very difficult and 
I wanted to use this as an experience to learn. So I, yeah. I, I actually did lots of different styles of speaking in each of these days. And of course, nobody in the room would have noticed what I was doing. But actually, I was thinking, well, I'm going to use notes for this one. I'm going to use two bullet points for this one. And I'm going to use a script for that one yes. to see you know, where my strengths are and whether I can deal, how I deal with these other situations. I've done it all in the past, but this was a really good intensive way of, uh, of just sort of um, moving forward. And there was one moment where uh, I, I did a, a speech. You stand up in a committee room. There's a few dozen MPs there. It's being broadcast. And uh, you're leading your team because you're on the front bench now. So you have your own sort of back benches. There's other MPs sitting behind you. And, and I stood up and did this, this speech. And straight afterwards, when we had a break, one of the opposition, my opposition speech, so a, a conservative member of parliament came over to me and said, God, it just comes so easy for you, doesn't it? You know, being able to stand up and do that. And, and I sort of smiled to myself and said, said encouraging words to her, <laughs> what she didn't know was, but I spent three hours the night before prepping for that. Yeah. Uh, so, so I hope that people who listen to this who do struggle with dyslexia or any other neurological challenge, you know, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And when you look at other people in awe sometimes, you know, try and just ask yourself, did it come naturally for them? You know, did, was it really effortless? Or have those people got there by, you know, real grunt work that you just haven't seen? Yes. And actually, for people who do struggle in life, the appearance of it being effortless yes. is sometimes something that you aspire to because you don't want people to look at you with pity. Uh, you don't want people to look at you and think, you know, God, you know, to think what he had to do to be able to do that speech. Yes. I don't want that. You know, I want people to, to judge me alongside uh, others on equal terms. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. I mean, you completely, you've absolutely nailed it. There was a, a moment at drama school where I, I sort of realized that all these tricks that I've been doing before, you know, I was among people who could see through them, that I wasn't being believable in the choices that I was making if you're not putting in the work and working uh, properly and working hard then you'll be found out and it doesn't matter what you do whether you're a singer or, or or you know an athlete if you don't put in those those hard yards then you won't get to a place where it looks completely effortless and, and what i love about what you were saying is loads of people are suckered in by people doing something really well because you, you, your goal is to make it look like there's absolutely no effort whatsoever that's what you want as I say, it doesn't matter who you are, businessman, athlete, politician. So it's it's such a huge compliment because I, I really feel people are admiring your work. They're admiring the amount of tenacity that you have. And that's what I've found talking to my guests so far, you're the fifth, is the the level of tenacity that all of them talk about. You need to have tenacity. You need to keep going and acknowledging that you're the underdog. I talked to Chris Robshaw, who's, who was the captain of England and, and was the, ca the ha captain of Harlequins. And, and he was saying he, he revels in mm, that. Being, being an underdog was what really brought the best out in him. You could sum my life up in one word, which is perseverance. I, I, I have no idea why I didn't take no for an answer when I was a kid. Yes. Because the problem with most young people is that they just take no for an answer. You know, no, no is never the end, mm. you know, unless it's your mum and dad. <laughs> uh, no is never the end of the road. You know, no is the first step in trying to find out why. Uh, what's the barrier? What's the reason for no? Yeah. Uh, how do I overcome it? You know, if I really want something and, and somebody or something or an organisation has said no, then what's the way around it? Are there any alternatives? Is, can I approach it in a different way? 
uh, can I go back again and ask again in a week's time? And could that, what do I have to do in that week to make the no a yes? But when people say to me, you were so lucky to be mentored by Anita Roddick, I always think, well, I was working on a Sunday when I met her. Yes. You know, that wasn't luck. That was persistence. That was determination. And I wasn't planning on meeting Anita Roddick on a Sunday. It was the last thing I wanted to do. Yes. But I wanted every single person that knew me in that workplace, which was only a short amount of people in that department, I wanted them to think that I was really good at my job uh, and that I was somebody that could trust and relied on and play a full part in everything. Uh, you know, so it is really interesting looking back. I don't know why, where that came from, that drive and determination. Uh, I had to apply six times to get into the body shop. I didn't take no for an answer. I had to apply four times to get into university uh, before they had a thing. And so much so that I had to go back to secondary school when I was 25 years old, sit in a classroom with 16-year-olds for a whole year to get the A-levels I needed to get into university. Uh, I've got no idea why, looking back, I would put myself through that humiliation of doing that. And then when I applied again, the university rejected me uh, again. Um, you know, so, uh, but I would never take no for an answer. I would always just find a way of moving forward. And there was something inside me that just just made me think, if I say no, if I accept no this time, then what happens next time? I'm sure that was the kind of thing that I, I, I wouldn't conceive of ever having a brick wall put in front of me that I couldn't either break down or climb over or go around. And, uh, and, and it led me to do some really bonkers things like going back to school in my, in my mid twenties. But, you know, I think it, it did, it did give me a kind of grounding and grit and ultimately, well, Hey, I've got the doctorate. I'm an MP. I've set a business and charities up all of all because I managed to, to achieve these things quite early on that other people I'm afraid just take for granted. Well, again, you struck on something that has developed quite organically and so beautifully through talking to the people I have is failure and the, a relationship to failure. And we're quite lucky that it's obviously in the title of the, of the podcast, Words Fail Me, that you have a healthy um, relationship with failure, that it's not a negative. And I'd, I'd love you to talk more about that. I mean, you talked a little bit about it, but is, is, is that how you think about it? Or do you, or do you just think about persistency? Well, I, I think actually we have to just define what failure is. I will accept failure on my terms, yes. but I will not accept failure being forced on me. Yes. Uh, I think that that's the distinction and that's the lesson that's come from from my background and upbringing and the, the, the expression of my persistence. The funny thing is that if the university had called me up and said, look, Peter, you know, we're not accepting you for this reason and that reason made sense, then I probably would have just taken it and moved on. There was no sense to them rejecting me i was i was applying to do international development and i've been an aid worker for the previous six years yes uh, you know it just made no sense that they wouldn't have me there to share that experience and to carry on learning and to put to put an intellectual kind of framework over the the raw experience that i'd had as an aid worker but so i knew that they weren't making sense in what they were doing so i was absolutely you know there's no way on earth i was going to take no for an answer so I've learned huge amounts from failure and, you know, I'm very reflective, very reflective and sometimes quite, you know, oversensitive to where I don't get things right. Uh, it's very, very rare that I will leave uh, work at the end of the day satisfied. And it's something sometimes that we've spoken about with the, the team that I work with now. Yeah, that's familiar. That, you know, sometimes they, they will say, 
look, we've had a thousand emails about this. You know, you've hit a nerve and you've got this onto the, the agenda. We're all really proud of what we've achieved as a team. And I'm like, oh, I didn't land the speech, you know, that I couldn't find the right word in that interview. And I could articulate this better next time. I promise you. Next yes. And they're sort of like, slow down, slow down. And other times, you know, for all the things that I've managed to get into uh, the public sphere and the debates that I've got up and, 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 and sometimes legislation, laws changed from the back bench uh, and coming within 12 votes of um, six MPs of changing the direction of Brexit, uh, all these sorts of things. I've usually left feeling annoyed that I didn't do better. And that's because I'm very self-aware of what, what I'm capable of. And if I don't achieve it, every time I put my, put my heart into it, then uh, I, I do beat myself up. But that is failure on my terms. What I won't have is somebody forcing it on me because they can't be bothered to do something or they've always done it this way. Uh, and I have written down the side of my office in Hove a quote from a, a woman called Grace Hopper. And the quote is, the most dangerous phrase in the English language is, we've always do it this way. And it's really important for me. Now, Grace Hopper was born in 1908 and became a vice admiral of the US Navy. I think she knew a few things about what's dangerous and what's not. So as long as this isn't just organizations who are doing things the way they always do things mindlessly, as long as this isn't, isn't somebody who is, can't be bothered to do what you're trying to achieve or, or give you uh, something that's going to help you along the way because they know it'll create work for them, you know, because as long as it's not being turned down because they, they think it's not part of the way they do things and they haven't got the imagination to look at the world slightly differently. As long as it's none of those things, I'll engage with it. But I, I will not be uh, dragged down by people who just can't be bothered. That's the thing. Uh, and I've never once in my life, I can't think of an example where I've accepted failure on those terms. Not one, little or small, to the point where. I, and I hope this doesn't make me out to be, sound like a complete madman, but uh, when I was working at the body shop in that job uh, in the very early days, a director of the company walked past and said, God, Peter, get your hair cut. And I was so affronted that somebody had just barked something so stupid at me. I got the calendar that was in front of me and I marked the date on the calendar and I never got my hair cut for a year from that date. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> so after a year, <laughs> nobody was mentioning my hair. <laughs> so they just sort of like, you know, they just realized that, you know, don't do that with me. And I'll work hard, I'll deliver everything. Yeah. But I've got my own way of doing things as well. And, it, you know, it won't upset the big scheme of things. But I need, I need to be able to find my own way through these things. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's very familiar. Beating yourself up, feeling like you could have done better. But I, I completely agree. If it's on your own terms, if it's introspection really helps, self analysis to see your way through it because ultimately it is you. You're under the spotlight. You're the one who is accountable. It's fascinating. People's relationships with the high stakes situations that I talk to, everyone has different approaches to, to dealing with the problems that, that dyslexia throws up. You call to mind, I mean, Theopathetus calls them workarounds. When I talk to him, he's saying it set him up for life because life is about problem solving. Yeah. And there, 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 is there something that you can share with us in terms of problem solving that, that you found really useful? Well, I think the best example in my world and the life that I have now, and it's about turning things to your advantage. It's about recognizing you have to work a bit harder than other people. But, you know, politics is, is a team game and people sometimes underplay just how much uh, it is part of a team. 
as a constituency MP, you have loads of people who, or you have a good solid team of people who work with you. On the outer team, you have this big team of volunteers that work with you and, and help the other people who are full time and all these sorts of things. It's a really amazing operation. Up in Parliament, of course, we're, we're in the same party uh, and being in the same party is part of being a team game as well. So that's what's led to this thing about MPs and politicians repeating lines, these lines you hear about. And this is if there is a topical issue of the moment, Yes. whether it be Brexit, whether it be coronavirus, whether it be any other thing that is just around or just something that's just coming up for this weekend or tomorrow or today. Sometimes the party will distribute lines and it'll be three or four paragraphs, sometimes a page where it'll just be quotes that you're asked to kind of use uh, and to weave into the conversations that you have when you're in the media. And I've never, ever been able to take lines or every time I have, I've really screwed the interview up. You can just see that behind my eyes, I'm thinking about how I sort of use these words that I've been given rather than actually thinking about how I want to express it. Uh, and when I first started getting involved in politics, I, I'm very sort of wanted my order to be seen as a team player and I wanted people to be proud of what I was saying. And also when you're a candidate, you're not used to speaking in the media. You're not used to being in the public eye in that way. So, and it is absolutely terrifying when you're doing these, these interviews, particularly the, the adversarial ones where you have opponents with you as well. So I used to torture myself with these lines yes. in that whole period where I was a candidate for the two, two years that I ever did an interview that I was satisfied with on any level. And the, the liberation came was after I got elected. And I started to have more time to focus on what I was saying and how I wanted to say it. That when there was an issue uh, and I saw these lines, what I did was try to understand where we were all coming from as a party, understand the issue, but also understand what it means to me. And if I can understand the issue inside and out, then I don't have to learn lines. I can actually just, I'll be able to respond as the question's put to me uh, in a way that's just quite authentic for me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it means that I don't very often use precisely what people have asked me to say, but nine times out of 10, I will articulate it in, in a very similar way that is far more authentic to me. And there are tricks that I need uh, that I don't talk about publicly because actually it benefits people who will ever go up against me. But providing that I know the issue inside and out, yes. providing I can be in the right frame of mind, I can be agile enough to say things in the way that's quite authentic for me without having to learn all these different lines. So that is definitely a workaround. And I think it, that's completely tailored to me as an individual and also the situation that I'm in. And I think rather than just trying to learn how other people cope with things, think very deeply about your own personality, the nature of your own dyslexia or, or neurological challenge, how it affects you, and then the environment that you're in and trying to succeed in. You know, where, what are the barriers? What is expected of you, which other people find easy, which you struggle with, and what is your way through it? Because the, the handbook, the guidebook, the, the wisdom that will be passed down by other people in the organization won't apply to you because they're so different to the experiences that you have. Absolutely. So try and think about how, it, how you can find your own way through it. Uh, for me, it just means I have to be in a, of a frame of mind. I have to be relaxed enough to, to be able to think in, in an agile way. Uh, but also know the issue inside and out. And I know that the words that will come out of my mouth, my mouth will be reflective, if not a carbon copy or a facsimile of what's been given to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very telling. Um, in the ancient Greek temples, they had two things written on the wall. They had, um, to thine own self be true, 
and balancing all things or, you know, measuring all things. It's just amazing how they, they still reverberate. There's, there's still such a truth to those, to those two things that you have to find your, your own way through it. Because, you know, if, if you're trying to um, sandwich in a non-organic line, as you call them, I mean, the one I, I think of, which was almost satire levels, was strong and stable. Um, obviously, <laughs> oh my God. that wasn't your party. Yeah. That was um, yeah. your position. But that, that got to a, a, such a point of satire that it was beyond uh, anyone doing a, a comedic take on it. Well, the thing that strikes me about your world is you're, you're being given, you know, you have to adopt a character. Yes. And then you have to say words that, you know, are completely fundamentally different to you because you're adopting a different character. I mean, I, I, I'm always in awe. I spoke, I spoke to Alan and other friends who acted about this you know, a lot. I just don't know how you, you can, uh, as, a, as a dyslexic, remember those words and speak to them in a, another character. Because for me, you know, I can only speak through a language which comes authentically to me. I mean, I'm in complete awe that you can, uh, because the, the arrangements of words are going to be so unnatural for you that remembering them must be a complete and utter nightmare. Mm. Well, what is a real headache for any dyslexic actor is that actually learning lines is the easiest part of being an actor. Because if learning lines made you an actor, then most, you know, most people are actors, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay. um, you know, because if you give them long enough, they'll be able to learn it. It's, it's then you, you really have to utilize the, the magic, the, the what if in, in Stanislavski, which is, you know, what if I was this person? So if I was at this time, you know, if I was a Russian in 1895, what would that be like for me? And you, that's, that's where the real work lies, you know, the, the words, as it were, that's, that's the easy bit. Then now you've got to start making the choices as if you were this character. So, you know, the, again, it's part of like, I'm already an underdog. I'm already at a disadvantage. I've already got this massive undertaking, which is just learning the lines. And then I've got to do the real work. And my work hasn't even started at that point. Wow. You know? that, that's how it is. Um, but it's, it's a, in, a, in an odd way, it's easier because I'm not being me. Actually, actually like I've, I'm actually a bit more nervous doing this podcast, talking to people because yeah. uh, I'm like, who am I? You know, <laughs> what, what, what character is this? And you, you sort of have to be relaxed as opposed to when your imagination can go here, there and everywhere with this character and, and, and you can make those choices and you, you make an offer to a director and they go, mm, it's not quite that. Maybe work for this. That's, that's wonderful because you can have that separation between you and the character. Whereas for yourself, you've got to get up there and you've, You've got to be convincing. So difficult for someone like me to understand that because yeah. I was with Alan once and I did a speech and it was in front of 800 people. Yeah. And then afterwards, Alan said, I will never, for as long as I live, know how you just did that. And I, <laughs> I said, I've seen you on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> he said, that's different. Yes. You know, but I didn't, it's really hard to understand. It is. Uh, for a non-actor, what, what, what that means. It is. I mean, you've also, like for your own mental well-being, if you can't, as it were, you know, do what a, a normal artist does, which is, you know, paint a picture and then and then have the distance from it so that other people can assess its worth or, you know, critique it. If you don't, if you can't have that divorce between yourself and, and the character you're playing, then, you know, what if you get a horrendous review or, you know, what if someone tears you to shreds in a, in a rehearsal room? It really does. And I have seen it. I have seen people not be able to disassociate themselves, as it were, from, from themselves and, and this this character but if you can't do that it's it's really really tough it's really i mean it's tough as enough as it is but if you can't do that um then it's it's really tough what i would love to talk about 
is is, is your aid work. Uh, you, you've touched on it very briefly, but you 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 worked in the Balkans and, and you did talk about um, starting the orphanage with with Alan as well. I'd I'd love to, to talk about that. Yeah, so I started work at the body shop's head office. Uh, then I had that fateful meeting with Anita Roddick one Sunday, and she very soon after that, uh, this is 1990. She came back from Romania. Ceausescu had been killed, the dictator of Romania at the time. Yeah, he had, he was executed at Christmas in Christmas 1990, and Anita went straight over there pretty soon after. And Anita being Anita didn't just go to Bucharest or go to one of the border with Hungary or something. She went straight to the northeast corner of Romania, which is the most isolated part of it. It's a couple of miles from the Ukraine and Moldova. It's sort of really right up there in the, in the sort of far-flung part of it. And then she found a, a very, very rural village that had three orphanages, uh, a, a sort of kindergarten orphanage, a sort of what would be a sort of junior school type age orphanage, and then a very large one that had hundreds of kids in it that was kind of like from 10 upwards. <clears throat> and this was, the conditions there were horrid. And she came back and spoke about it. I heard her speaking about it. And I just thought I had got to do something. So I got involved volunteering after work and before work and throwing myself into it. And uh, Anita just said, you know, you should just go over there and just see it. So later that same year, I went on, I think it was like the second trip that uh, was, was being done there and arrived in, I think it was September. And it took, took a long time to get there in those days. You had to fly via Warsaw and then go to Bucharest and you had to get this, this long overnight train journey. Anyway, we arrived at the orphanage and this is the best way of describing it because I don't want to just, just sort of just be graphic about things. But uh, when we arrived on a team of about 20 people, it was in about three o'clock in the morning and we were living in a wing of the orphanage that didn't have any kids in it. And we walked into the building and about six or seven people who was in that group threw up from the smell of just being inside the building that didn't even have kids actively living there. Mm. That's just how bad the conditions were in that place. Yeah. So, and I was, um, I was like 19 at the time, you know, 1920 and threw myself into this, yeah. came back uh, from that trip completely transformed, determined. There were three of us who volunteered on that trip who went to Anita and just said, this isn't a one-off thing. This isn't a year's commitment. We have now got to be there for those kids right the way through. And she said, fine, okay, off you go, do it. So we set this charity up, the three of us, and grew it. And then we, we honoured that commitment to that generation of youngsters. We, we invested huge amounts of resource, socialisation work, physical work in the, in, in the orphanage. Uh, then we saw them right the way through to, to the point where we would get every one of those kids that we could uh, into the work, training, uh, education. Uh, loads of socialisation work. I mean, it's hard to describe the nature of the, the deprivation and neglect and abuse and violence that those kids had, had endured in their time. So we then, that, that building still stands, there's no kids in it anymore. You know, we, we didn't finish until every kid was out of that place yeah. uh, and into some kind of productive life and through halfway houses, through lots of other things. Uh, at the same time, the, the horrors within Eastern Europe spread uh, and, and the lid was lifted on what was happening and the Balkans went into decline and then into war. Yes. Uh, and our project grew and grew and grew and, and worked uh, all over the place in areas of political instability and war. And we always cared for the young people who were 
impacted negatively by these big political forces. And the charity still goes on now. But I was there, so I worked in Kosovo uh, in that period in the refugee camps in Albania and Kosovo, uh, and then in Kosovo to help rebuild. Uh, and all those sorts of things. So it was a very, very intense period. You certainly learned the limits of what you can endure personally, emotionally and physically. Yeah. Uh, and I learned that at a, at a very young age and learned a lot, of, a lot about leadership, a lot about people, a lot about uh, being with people who are under stress and lots of very visceral talents and lot, lots of overcoming barriers organizationally. Uh, and with a team of people, because again, this whole thing, we were constantly sort of patronized and talked down to by the sort of established bits of the aid world at the time. Uh, and yet what we were achieving was really quite remarkable. We were doing things that the big agencies sort of overlooked and sort of all these things that fell between the cracks in these massive situations. And we were there and um, I'm, I'm unbelievably proud of what we achieved in, in that period. Yes. And we stuck our necks out time and time again and there are a few incidences where, I mean, a good example of the kind of thing we did was we, in, in Albania. We were in one town where 50,000 refugees arrived overnight, in one night. Wow. And imagine what that does, what that looks like. Yeah. And we responded and then we said, look, there's, there's medical issues going on here. Uh, there are pregnant women there are uh, people with chronic health challenges and they were in these refugee camps that are in fields five miles from the town six miles from the town further uh, we're gonna we need to get in here a mobile medical unit uh, with doctors that can, can regularly go around and give people treatment bearing in mind many of the women that we were uh, dealing with then and helping had gynecological problems because of the rape and abuse that had been inflicted on them as a weapon of war uh, so yeah. all of this was you know you know very very difficult to deal with uh, or the aid agencies the big ones at the time said no 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 we're using the african model here we put a flag and an advert in the local paper and a flag on the flagpole and people who need help can walk to us these people are capable of walking and we just said no way and then we so two weeks later we had this mobile medical unit delivered and eterotic paid for it land rover donated a vehicle for it we it was like an anarchy rice thing we all just got this thing up and running and you know done and in situ within a fortnight uh the night we arrived a woman gave birth uh you know and, and if and if we hadn't been there she would have given birth on her own in a camp with no help jesus uh, so you know we were vindicated the first day it arrived but the funniest thing came uh, well you know <laughs> sort, of, sort of funny arrived uh, two weeks later when one of the big ag agencies suddenly started banging at our door i mean so what's the matter and they said one of our staff has been shot can you go and help them please so of course wow you know it was only the next day after it was all dealt with we shot out there with the clinic and a doctor and the person had been shot in the leg in, in, in a road and we gave them the attention they needed. Yeah. Uh, but it was only the next day that we realized we, that we did say to them, you know what the obvious thing here is, you know, they should have walked five miles, followed the flagpole to get the help they needed. Yeah. So, you know, we, we learned a lot of lessons about the, about not be just because we are naive. We always knew we were. And just because we were utopian and we knew we were, yeah. doesn't mean you're wrong. Yes. It doesn't mean that because you're young and you've got a different take on the world, it doesn't mean that you're wrong. Yes. That you're not doing things in the established way, the way that they've always done. That quote from Grace Hopper, uh, the most dangerous phrase in the world, we, you always get this way. Yeah. Uh, so we were learning these things in the most dramatic of situations from a very early age. And, uh, and then it got to the point where I saw, and this is quite important, uh, I, I saw 
some of the moral corruption that had entered the aid community itself. And I was quite sensitive to it. I never saw any of the criminality that we was uncovered by the work that was the, the stuff that was happening in Ox, in um, Oxfam. Uh, Haiti and other places that made it into the news two years ago. Yes, but I, I saw them. I saw the cultural corruption, which certainly allowed that kind of thing to happen and go unchecked. And I didn't like it. So one day I was talking to Anita Roddick, and I said, "You know, I see these people. Uh, I don't think they're trained. I don't think they have the right temperament. I don't think they have the right approach to life and experience, knowledge to do the jobs they're doing in aid world. And they wouldn't have this responsibility if they were in Britain working in a regulated economy in a regulated society. Yeah, they can only get away with these things because they're working in an unregulated, unstable, dysfunctional uh, place." And and Anita agreed with me, and I said. But Anita, I've not had training. I'm worried that in 10 years' time, I'll become like that. Yeah. And she laughed and said, but Peter, I don't think you're going to become like that. But she said, but you are right. You've done all this work now for years based on your instinct and your heart. She said, it probably is time that you think about doing stuff you know, from your head and start balancing out your approach to these things. She said, why don't you go to university? And I was staggered because not a single person in my entire life had ever mentioned university to me. Yes. And that was the first time anyone had uh, suggested I go to university. Uh, and that unlocked the chain of events that, that led to me applying, being rejected, applying, applying, being rejected, and then going back to secondary school and, and all of that. And in those days, I never thought I was going into politics. All I wanted was to go and learn international development so I could be the best aid worker that was around. I want to be the best aid worker I could be. Yeah. I studied international development, environmental studies and human geography. Then I did a doctorate on international development and community economic development. You know, I thought I would go back out into the field again. It, it was a quirk of fate that took me in a different direction. Well, you keep coming back to education and further education. My, my mum was a, an FE lecturer and, and you've, you've sat on the board for further education and lifelong, lifelong learning. I mean, it's, it's clear the, 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 how huge it is to you personally. But I, yeah, I, I would love to talk about further education and, and, and lifelong learning and, and, and how important they are in terms of, of the things that you do in your community and, and why it's so important. Well, that experience that I've described to you, my own pathway, is what politicised me. Yeah. I mean, I had to batter down the door for an education. I mean, I, I literally had to beat the doors open with my sort of bare fist to get an education. That is counter to everything we in Britain think that our public services exists for. Absolutely. Everybody thinks, and particularly on the left politics and in the Labour Party, we all think that public services are there for the people who need them when they need them, whether it be police, whether it be the hospitals and the health, or whether it be education or any of the other of our public services. We kind of think, well, we put a hand up and say, I'd like an education now, and it's great, go and get one. But it's not like that. And the people who need it the most have least access to it. And there are more and more barriers put up for them. And this is the experience that drove me ultimately towards politics. So I was uh, absolutely driven by this experience. And I know full well that for every person out there like me who becomes an MP, I stand in front of groups of people. And every time I stand in front of a group of people, I think, well, how many doctorates don't exist? How many businesses haven't been set up? Yeah. You know, how many people haven't become MPs from my background simply because people were told no and they accepted it? Yeah. You know, I think that that applies to probably a third of all of the people in the audiences that I speak to. Mm. 
you know, I don't think entrepreneurial talent is is distributed by race, age, background, whether you're working class or whether you're affluent in your upbringing. It's not, mm. you know, but something prevents people from setting up businesses. And it's the same for health outcomes, same for educational outcomes. Uh, you know, and I, I, I just, you know, believe absolutely passionately that we need to revolutionize the way that we make uh, education accessible to people. And we never, ever, ever accept failure when it comes to public services, because every time there is a failure, whether it's for failing one patient, one student, or one victim of crime, there is always a reason behind it, a very understandable reason behind it. But we can't accept that as a kind of excuse, carte blanche. We can't accept that some people will always get a worse education because they grow up in poorer backgrounds. Yeah. We can't accept that people will have less health outcomes, less relationship success, and they'll have less sort of chances of having the law on their side when they need it, simply because they are born to a certain race or they're born in a certain background or a certain geographical area. We can't accept these. And on the left, even though we have an empathy with the people who are working in these services, doing the best they can in difficult circumstances, we cannot accept failure ever. Yes. We've got to root it out. We've got to find out where it is and we've got to turn it around. So for me, the most profound sort of uh, understanding about that period for me is that Anita Roddick, was the first individual outside of my family that saw potential in me that I didn't know was there and helped me exploit it. Yes. But the University of Sussex, once I'd beaten down the doors to it, was the first institution that saw potential in me and helped me exploit it. That is you know, quite a profound thing to, to know, that there was uh, an institution out there that was stretching me, that was challenging me, that embraced me in all my cocky, all my sort of <laughs> loud mouth, sort of <laughs> challenging, uh, rough diamond ways. Taught me discipline. It taught me erudition. It taught me, you know, vocabulary. I was surrounded by people who had this wealth of understanding and knowledge that I was in awe of. And it taught me how to be really comfortable and exhilarated when I'm with in a room and sharing the company of people who just know more than me who have greater expertise and knowledge than me, yeah. not to be threatened by it, to be embraced by it. You know, it's so I am so sad that other people don't have that experience and don't have, don't benefit from those institutions. Completely. Uh, you know, and it's, it's understandable that everybody doesn't have an Anita Roddick because, you know, she's a one-off. Yeah. So not everyone can have a, an Anita Roddick out there. But my God, everyone should have a university or a technical college or a, you know, a, a further education opportunity out there or an apprenticeship in a business. Yeah. Uh, another pathway, another institutional pathway that sees uh, potential uh, and hones it and develops it and uh, helps people find a pathway that's true to themselves. I, I really, truly believe it's possible, but my God, we are not a fraction of the way of deliver to delivering it yet. So yes, I became chair of the all-party group on lifelong learning and further education, bringing together MPs and ministers and people who are working in FE, celebrating the work of it, trying to get better policy for it, get more resources to it. I've had to stand down since I got promoted, but I still have a massive sort of interest in it. I've been involved in setting up two schools locally in Brighton. Both of them were in special measures, both of them in areas of deprivation, both of them underperforming. And even though I hadn't set 
foot in a school since I left school. Uh, there is no way I was going to live in a community. And this was before, way before I got involved in politics. Uh, there was no way I was going to live in a community that had an institution that was there to set up and deliver social mobility and opportunity and expertise and knowledge to young people. And it was failing them. No way on earth I was going to go about my life as if that wasn't happening and, and I could turn a blind eye to it. So I got involved with an entrepreneur who was investing in education and I did everything I could do to work with him and together uh, set two schools up locally, both of which moved out, especially within two years, three years, uh, went through the ranks of Ofsted in both situations uh, in two years, uh, exam results were up over 100%. Every single school leaver within three years was going into education, into training or into work. So good. Uh, whereas before it was, you know, a, a fraction of. You know, and it just shows that, uh, you know, it was a difficult, difficult time. And as, as chair of governors of this sort of thing, I never did realize I had it in me to do to do that kind of thing. If there's people out there that think you can't get involved in schools, be a governor and make a difference. There are so many opportunities to really get involved in the way we deliver public services and give voice to the people who just need things to be done for them and never, ever, ever just say, OK, that was inevitable. Uh, yeah, we could never. We could never get them all going to university because they come from, you know, challenging backgrounds. Well, we've proved them wrong, particularly with that school uh, and these schools. And, you know, we just need a whole country that will have that approach. Well, I think that is a beautiful note to end on. So I want to thank you so much for giving us your time and talking so eruditely. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. I really, really, uh, really enjoyed it. And, and anyone who does listen to this, I, I hope they... Uh, from your background and my background, I hope they don't see that there is something there that's untouchable, unreplicable, that unachievable. Yes. Uh, I really hope that uh, the people will see that, that that you and I, both people who you know come from very ordinary backgrounds, and just by the simple act of not making no the final statement and finding ways around and just persevering, that you know there's a lot of things in you that you can discover that you may not be aware of at the moment. So thank you for giving the opportunity to talk about it. I appreciate it. This is what it's all about. It's what it's all about. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia with me, Jude McGowan. My guest today was the MP, Peter Kyle. There are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening.